Welcome to the Quillette Podcast. My name is Claire Lehman and I am Editor-in-Chief of Quillette. Quillette is where free thought lives. We are an independent grassroots platform for heterodox ideas and fearless commentary. Our podcast is a team effort and is jointly hosted by myself, Associate Editor Toby Young and Canadian Editor Jonathan Kay. You can support our podcast by visiting patreon.com forward slash Quillette and becoming a monthly patron. By becoming a monthly patron, you'll also receive our weekly newsletter. Hi, I'm Toby Young, one of Quillette's London-based editors. Claire Fox is a British journalist and broadcaster who's been an energetic contributor to public debates for more than 30 years, often from what might be called a left libertarian point of view, although she defies categorization. Once a member of the Revolutionary Communist Party, Claire's now a staunch Brexiteer, and the Brexit Party recently announced that Claire would be standing as a candidate for them in the elections to the European Parliament on the 23rd of May. I spoke to Claire about what it's like for a political commentator to become a political combatant, to enter the arena, as Teddy Roosevelt put it, and about whether she still holds some of the views she held as a revolutionary communist and how much nose-holding she's had to do in order to stand as a candidate for a party led by Nigel Farage, the former leader of the United Kingdom Independence Party, generally considered a populist right-wing party. Here are excerpts from that conversation. When we last spoke, you were weighing up whether to do this, and you were in two minds. Um, Can you tell me what your reservations were and whether you now think, actually, I was right to be wary of this, or or, or are you essentially pleased that you've done this? I remember that conversation, Toby, and I was weighing it up. And I think after I spoke to you, not because I spoke to you, I actually decided against standing. I'd more or less thought, you know, I'm a commentator, um, I have access to the media, I, I can make my points and my arguments, and... You know, if I stand, it'll be a distraction. So I went through all of this, and I spent, after I decided I wasn't standing, I spent 24 hours being absolutely relieved and delighted, feeling I'd done the right thing. And then I spent a following week being annoyed with myself, or rather, watching political events unravel and just thinking, I can't believe they're going to get away with this. And me going on Sky Papers or the Moral Maze isn't going to quite... make such a big song and dance of what I do consider to be the most dangerous assault on democracy in Britain's history, you know, modern history. So if you think it's that big an issue, you have to at least then... Mm. Was there a particular pivotal moment, a particular piece of political shamelessness that you thought, I just can't let this stand, I have to be in the arena and challenging these charlatans? David Lammy on the Mar programme saying that people who supported, uh, you know, hard Brexit, but i.e. a clean Brexit, in my view, or Brexit, um, were worse than Nazis. I mean, I screamed at the television. I couldn't bear that. You know, somebody on the left of politics, you know, in the Labour Party, presents himself very much as this radical, could get away with smearing millions of voters effectively by inference as somehow uh, worse than the greatest (laughs) European genocide um, 
and that kind of like get away with that as though that was a left-wing position. I just thought, oh my God, that's so insulting and irrational and ridiculous. So that, that was quite a pivotal moment. I think as well I, I felt, and I still feel, um, that there's only, these European elections are a very unique moment. I mean, they, I've never thought about standing for elected office before. But I realised that because they were happening based on the fact that we hadn't left the European Union, that they became a lightning rod, or they had the potential to be a lightning rod for people who were in utter despair that their votes had been trashed. And I thought that maybe these elections could give people hope that there was, you know, that, that actually rather than saying, I'm never, I'm disengaging from politics in a kind of cynical, bitter, festering way that they might feel Actually, no, there's a, I'm going to say this again, and also I kept meeting, this is important, I think. I did keep meeting a lot of Remain voters who were saying to me that they were outraged about what was happening to democracy, and they felt very unhappy and uneasy about it, and they were sort of saying, you know, what are we going to do about it? So eventually, you just think, if I stand, it'll cause something of a kerfuffle. And maybe that would be something I could make into something positive. My other reservations were, I, you know, I have spent years building up the Academy of Ideas and have a certain acceptance in liberal media land. And I think they think I'm a bit mad, but they sort of broadly respect uh, the work that we've done. I have colleagues who work very hard on this. And I was worried that if I did this, it would be used as an excuse to attack the work that we've been mm -hmm putting so much energy into. I want to come on in a minute to things you've said, positions you've taken in the past being dredged up and used against you since you've announced your candidacy. But before we go there, presumably one of your reasons for being cautious about throwing in your lot with the Brexit party is because you don't share all of Nigel Farage's politics, um, particularly his attitude towards immigration. If the Brexit party has an afterlife, and Nigel Farage has said that he intends it not just to be a flash in the pan, only standing in the European Parliament elections, but if it does well, to continue and to field candidates in the next general election, will you, do you think, still be involved? Do you, and is there any possibility you might stand as a Brexit candidate for Parliament? We're now at the point where anything is possible. And I, what I really admire about what the Brexit party have done, and I wasn't sure that this was going to happen, is they have assembled, because I was at a candidates meeting yesterday, and I, I was genuinely maybe relieved but delighted to discover such a wide range of, and diverse, you know, tick so many boxes you wouldn't make, you couldn't make it up, but actually genuinely people with so many different interests, professions, backgrounds, politics, and we all told exactly the same story. We were all going around saying, what made you stand? And we'd all say, it was this betrayal of drug. It was like listening to yourself in a way. And you could say, well, that's kind of echo chamber. But on absolutely everything else, we'd probably disagree. So I don't think there's any room uh, for what would be a united manifesto at this point in the game. Um, I think that, that, but I think that the notion of kind of shaking up two party, uh, the, the two-party politics, really having a go at creating a new space for debate and politics, actually, uh, is, is admirable. Post-European elections, 
if there's discussions about manifesto, I think everybody might be aware of the fact that there might be disagreements and I've yet to see what will happen. But I really am not standing for that. But I admire the, the aspiration to set up a new party for the long run. Mm -hmm. My aspiration is not that. My aspiration is to stand in these European elections with the Brexit party unapologetically. Um, and Farage deserves credit for being the only uh, person to set up a party that is actually honouring the vote. That's all that matters to me at this point. So, I mean, how much nose-holding has has, have you had to do? Um, uh, yeah, not, well, not, not in relation to, what, not in relation to what they're, what's being argued by the Brexit party. You know, the, the, this relates to what you're, you know, I know that you're keen to discuss with me, but, you know, there's things that Nigel Farage has argued in the past that I won't agree with and probably believes now. But the Brexit party itself, I haven't had to do any of that. I mean, it's a pretty clear, positive, hopeful message in terms of, you know, time we've got to change politics and, and, and democracy matters. I mean, it, you know, it sounds simplistic, but I've done nothing but think about the issue of democracy for the last three years. I've read more books in philosophy and history of sovereignty and, and so on in terms of what I think. So I've hardly just arrived because of a slogan. But I think behind that slogan is something very meaningful. And I mean it. I, I actually think if the establishment were able to get away with um, doing what they have done in relation to Brexit with no opposition and with nowhere for voters to see the ballot box as a way of expressing their utter fury and despondency and disillusion, I think we'd be in a very serious uh, place. So in that sense, it's been fine. Has there been any discussion within the Brexit party amongst the candidates about what you'll do if you succeed? And it does at this point look quite likely that at least some Brexit party candidates will be elected to the European Parliament. Will you take up your seats in the European Parliament? Will you accept a salary? from the EU and some of the perks? Will you actually have an office in Strasbourg? Um, will you be charging yeah. things to expenses at the expense of the European Union? Um, so certainly taking up seats has, yes. I mean, I, I'm, I'm also standing to get elected, by the way. I'm not standing just as a symbol. Right. I want to get elected, I want to win. Um, I want to go to the European Parliament. I want to go to the European Parliament because it's a platform through which I can make it very clear what I think of the European Parliament and I intend to take all of the things I learn at that European Parliament to bring them back to the voters of this country to explain why I now practically know what I've argued for a long time which is European Parliament's got no power but mm -hmm. it's a platform there's no doubt about it and I didn't want these elections to happen I think the European Parliament is a toothless charade of democratic accountability but it's nonetheless affords an opportunity for those of us who wanted to leave the European Union to really shake up and continue, I suppose, the debate for leaving. Now, on your point about um, expenses and offices and salaries, well, first of all, I'm trying to get out of the European Union, so I'm hoping it won't be there long. Right. Um, so I, you know, I just want them to work, I want the, you know, I want the referendum result to be um, honoured, so I'm not doing this for a career move. I mean, I want to win, but I want to win to lose, if you know what I mean. Mm -hmm. um, I want them to leave the European Union. I want the, the, the shock of the Brexit party to do very well to make the establishment go, oh, my God, we better get out and the voters and so on and so forth. 
Um, so somebody was saying to me, do you get a pension? I thought, God, I'm not doing it. But, you know, I'm not, we're not thinking that far. However, I suppose if you are standing, if, I mean, if you take up your seats, there will be those things to discuss. The only thing that I've been wanted to be clear about, and, uh, and I know that the candidates have as well, which I think is perfectly reasonable, is whatever happens, it'll be open and transparent in terms of what mm -hmm. the decisions are, mm -hmm. in terms of expenses or all of these things. I mean, it is extraordinary because when you stand and you look at what apparently you get, you think, you know when I've been saying it's a gravy train, I didn't quite realise what a gravy train it is. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, so... A lot of gravy. So, presumably, another of your reservations about standing was because you knew that various things you'd said, positions you'd taken in the past, would be brought up. I want to start with what I describe as a classic example of offence archaeology, in which uh, Christopher Hope, a Sunday Telegraph journalist, uh, asked you in a podcast about some remarks you'd made 24 years ago on, I think, the Jeremy Vine programme on Radio 2 about Gary Glitter, an English pop star who um, was in prison for child pornography offences, um, in which you had supposedly uh, defended people's right to access child porn on the web. And you denied it um, and clarified what you'd said, but not perhaps as emphatically or as clearly as you might have done, because then the Sunday Telegraph ran a story essentially saying that a Brexit party candidate was such a libertarian that they would even go so far as to defend child pornography on the internet. Yeah, I mean, it, it, was, a, it was and is a classic case of the worst kind of bad faith uh, political debate today, in my view. I have, uh, all my political life, and I mean, you know, you can listen to me, every week on the moral maze and I've written extensively and I've spoken about this and, I, and I've run events according to this, I've written a book on it. I'm well known as a, as a free speech absolutist. I, mm -hmm. I, I say free speech, no ifs, no buts. I've defended things that other people would say, why would you defend that? And I've said I don't agree with any of it, I simply am worried about censorship, I'm worried about state censorship. I'm worried about internet censorship and so on and so forth. And in the context of that, of course, you can take one incident which was noted in a newspaper hit job mm -hmm. many years ago when I first started in the, the Academy Guardian. of Ideas in The Guardian, based on that journalist having heard me on a radio programme, and this is the truth. I can't remember the rate, you know, particularly right. the details. So if I appear to be fuzzy, it's mm -hmm. because I've done a lot of radio programmes, I can't quite remember. And I, but I know that that reference exists because that, that reference in The Guardian from an article many years ago then appears in Wikipedia as though it's true and I can't even refute it because I don't even know. But I am a free speech absolutist and of course in the context of that I will have had to say that I defend, because it's true, I mean I don't, free speech has to be for the most unpalatable views and the most unpalatable things. And in the context of that, I make no apology for that at all. And that is very different to saying that I support it or, you know, I support anything that I think we need free speech for. But if I only offered free speech for people whose views I found acceptable, <laughs> then that would be free speech, would it? So it's in that context. 
So the reason I say it's bad faith, you know, journalists are allowed to ask what they want, and that's fine. And I'm standing as a, elect, you mm -hmm. can do it. But what I really feel is, was this done as a way of really helping move on the discussion about what I'm trying to talk about, which is democracy in the European mm -hmm. Union, or was it done because this creates headlines and everybody mm -hmm. has a, thoroughly enjoys it, and inevitably it then gets used on social media, it, you know, outside of the context of a podcast, which you can listen to, instead of it being the podcast, it's the headline, and then nobody's read the, listened to the podcast, nobody's read the article, but the headline becomes what people say, mm -hmm. this woman is, etc., mm -hmm. etc. And this, is ha this happens all the time, of course, you know. I don't want it to seem like this is because it's about me. I mean, we've just seen a, a situation where, you know, one of the greatest living philosophers, um, mm -hmm. or, or, you know, alive, uh, Roger Scruton, has been traduced, I mean, in that instance, in a, a particularly egregious way of misquoted, I mean, misquoted, I understand that, and, and, and a kind of malicious misquoting, that's all been exposed. But I think that it's, there's something of the speed with which people will believe that, without thinking about it for two minutes, and just use it and straight away say, yeah, the Tories have employed their housing czar who is an anti-Semite racist, and you just think, think for a moment and of course uh, even though you can have your reputation you can you can be proved in Roger Scruton's case that this was all absolutely not based on what he'd actually said one's reputation can be damaged very badly by that on on, mm -hmm. on, on social mm -hmm. media and no number of apologies and weasley words kind of gets you around that so mm -hmm. I'm open to that now but just to be clear, your free speech absolutism presumably doesn't extend to uh, defending people's right to view child porn. The point about uh, that I, I've tried to make is child porn itself is a criminal offence, mm -hmm. right? It's the abuse of children. And believe it or not, I don't agree with that. And you don't want to repeal any of the laws prohibiting the viewing of child pornography or the possession of child pornography? I have not like campaigned that. for that. <laughs> but I think it's important to state that whenever there's an attempt at censorship of the internet, the most vile things are used to try mm -hmm. and get you to say that, you, yes, I think there should be more laws and more censorship and mm -hmm. more restrictions. And I am wary of... Um, allowing people to use those vile things as a way of getting people to then mm -hmm. go along with censorship. Mm -hmm. Now getting on to another tranche of things that have been brought yeah. up. Your links with, well, your, your revolutionary Communist Party past, your um, involvement with Living Marxism, a magazine which then became LM. There doesn't seem to me to have been any settling of accounts between you and Brendan O'Neill and Frank Ferreira, amongst others, uh, with your revolutionary communist past, or if you have addressed it, um, I don't think I've seen it. So I would just ask you a little bit about that. You, first of all, there was the notorious LM article about the camp in Serbia in which LM denied that it was a concentration camp, a prison where the Bosnian Serbs were holding prisoners, and accused ITN, which broadcast a report about that prison in 1992, of essentially trafficking in fake news, and that, in fact, it wasn't a detention centre, but a safe haven for refugees. And LM called the footage of 
emaciated Muslim men with their faces pressed against the wire as, quote, the picture that fooled the world. Unquote. But I have to, I, this is difficult because yeah. um, I lost a libel case on this. And yeah. if you lose a libel case, you can't repeat. Or it's an unfair way. I can't answer those uh, allegations. A number of things that you said there are just not true. I mean, LM did not say some of the things you said. Uh, um, So it's very difficult, right? You know, nobody said it wasn't a prison. Nobody said any of that, right? So, but it's very difficult to go into it because it's a libel. It's a question of libel. And I want um, to say that we lost that libel case and libel is used regularly uh, as a way of attacking media freedom, free press. And it was a libel case against a small independent magazine. And I would love the public to be able to read the original article, mm-hmm. but I'm not able to facilitate that and judge you know, what was said in the public square. You can't do that now, but I don't think that losing a libel case, most journalists would acknowledge that if you lose a libel case, that's not the same as truth. You know, is the libel law now to determine truth? And I hope that people realise it's not. Well, just uh, just, uh, just to clarify, because I'm, as a journalist, I've worked both in America and in the UK, and the difference between the US and UK libel laws is that in order to show something is libelous, you have to show both that it's untrue and that it defames someone's reputation. Um, but in the US, the burden of proof is on the plaintiff to show that it's untrue, whereas in the UK, the burden of proof is on the defendant to demonstrate that it's true. And it wasn't the truth question, it was the defamation question that was the core part of that. Now, the, the, the point I'd make, uh, it's important for people who are listening to this podcast, is in this instance, I'm uh, uh, happy to discuss these things, but I can't because of the libel laws. But I think it's also difficult to um, say that you're going to stand for public office, get elected, and people want to talk about things. As you say, oh, well, you've never been held to account. It's like, well, first of all, I've been operating in the public sphere for 20 years. You could have asked me at any time during that time, not you, but every journalist in the world could have asked me at any time, and sometimes they have, for what I was doing in the Revolutionary Communist Party until 1997 when it folded or whatever, whenever mm-hmm. year, I didn't even know when it folded, but the late 90s. Um, I've been on the media throughout that time. People have had access to my views throughout that time and no one's ever asked me. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's extraordinary to me that I stand in a highly contentious election, contentious because we should have left the EU and now I'm standing. And then everybody wants to discuss my views of 25 years ago. And that just feels to me as though rather than it being a sort of serious uh, discussion about my political past, it's a way, and I know that you're not trying to do this, but I think it's important to say, it does feel like a way of trying to discredit my political present mm-hmm. and my political trajectory. I mean, I, these things were not a secret. Mm-hmm. You know, I went out on the streets of the UK and sold a mm-hmm. variety of revolutionary communist publications and I was the publisher of a magazine that went bankrupt after a libel case. Mm-hmm. I've hardly been hiding my light under a bushel all that time. But I guess one thing I'm still not completely clear about is um, would you still stand by that article in LM or do you now accept that you got the, 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 the author of that piece got some, some facts wrong? No, the facts were not proven to be wrong and the judge at the court case made it clear that 
it was factually accurate. Okay. In his summation, when okay. he found us guilty, by the way. Okay. Otherwise, I would never have survived. I think you have to recognise that every media journalist in the country was in that courtroom. Yeah. And it was front page news. Mm -hmm. And if it had been seen in any way that I had published a magazine that had gone out of its way to lie, I would not have had any kind of a career subsequently. Mm -hmm. And I have. Okay. The other big issue that um, has been brought up is the Revolutionary Communist Party and various front organisations that the RCP was supposedly linked with, its support, their support for the IRA. You know, there have been a number of Twitter threads about this um, and there are quite a few blogs, but um, there, there, there does seem to be some pretty decent evidence that either the RCP or its front organisations, or people linked to the RCP at the time, like Brendan O'Neill, defended the IRA, refused to condemn, for instance, the Birmingham bombings in which 21 people died, attacked the Good Friday Agreement, met with former gun runners for the IRA, and so on and so forth. And well, I mean, so, I mean, some of those things are just not true. But I, I, again, I want to say, you know, I, I was um, uh, involved in, in a, a, a revolutionary party and it uh, had a campaign called the Irish Freedom Movement. Front organisation is one of those phrases that's used yep. to somehow imply that there's... Anyway, and, um, you know, I take the same approach as Bernadette Makaliski to this, uh, you know, a, a civil liberties campaigner who I have some regard for, uh, who said when the Good Friday Agreement came up, um, look, the war's over and as far as I'm concerned, the good guys lost that's it. I don't support the armed struggle from now on. And that was my approach. I, you know, when you say there seems good evidence... The good guys the, lost, the good yeah, guys yeah, being... Yes, those people who were fighting for Irish freedom. I was in the Irish freedom movement. I, 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 when you're saying there's good evidence, as you will know because you will have seen the internet, um, all of the publications that were... I mean, somebody's done a good job of finding all those publications, but they weren't hidden. Mm -hmm. Those publications have existed in the whole time and they say what they say. And that was, you know, 25, 35 years ago. I mean, you've mentioned a number of things um, that were said in those publications. Some of what you said is just, you know, that's just malicious rumour. But what was written down was written down. I mean, there was, uh, there was one piece in 1980 which seemed to come from the Revolutionary Communist Party which said, quote, we support the struggle of the Irish people against British imperialism, that's why we refuse to condemn or criticise the Birmingham bombings. And there were sort of numerous statements like that. Yes, but when but you say the good guys Yeah, lost, I was quoting Bernadette Makaliski there and the point at the time, think um, of this as a, a, a kind of historic moment in the 80s uh, many anti-imperialists were on the side of those people who were opposed to, you know, military interventions or uh, there was a whole range of liberation movements going on. I supported Nelson Mandela when he was in prison before he became a hero of everybody, a darling of everybody. And he was in prison for what? I mean, things that these days we wouldn't accept. I um, know that when Martin McGuinness died, he was uh, somebody that, whose praises were sung internationally by uh, presidents and uh, MPs of all political colours as being a man of peace. 
somebody who'd been actually involved in um, and associated with directly or fairly directly the arms struggle. What I'm being accused of is um, supporting some of those things when I was young and mm -hmm. I stand by the fact that I supported those things when I was young. I was an anti-imperialist. But you don't, when you say the good, when you quote it, Yes, but I, the good guys Toby, what you're trying to do, what's well, happening is, I, no, but I, I'm not refuting what you've said, and, but I don't know whether you want me to do a recantation. These are things which I... Well, I'm trying to get a handle on whether, whether it was sort of um, youthful folly, no. which you now regret, no. or whether you still stand by those views and you think that um, the IRA were essentially the good guys. The uh, Irish people, not the IRA, the Irish people had people fighting on their behalf and I, uh, at the time, saw publications that supported them. I think that what's happening now in this conversation, which you should know better than, which is this is an attempt, and this is what drives me mad, to get people to apologise for things which they firmly, sincerely believed in for years. I haven't been involved in Irish politics for more than 25 years, and I'm standing in an election and everybody wants to go over. As I said, these were, things were in the public sphere. Why, do you, why are you well, so interested? I guess... I guess. I want to know why you yeah. think it's relevant now. Is it because I'm standing as a Euro in the European elections? Do you think that's really relevant? Well, I think it is. I, think, I, think, I suppose the, the why reason... Why is it relevant? Well, the reason I think it's relevant is partly because it's something I disagree with you about. Yes, um, and we I disagree sort of, on many things. We disagree on many things, but I think of you as you know, an ally in many of the ideological struggles that I, I'm involved with, and so am uncomfortable about that difference. But um, I guess in the, in the context of your standing as a Brexit candidate, one of the criticisms that Remain makes of Brexit, people in the Remain camp, is that it's likely to lead to the dissolution of the United Kingdom. Uh, and in particular, it may, I mean, I don't agree with this, but this is one of the points hardcore Remainers make, that uh, if we do leave the European Union, it could jeopardise the Good Friday Agreement and that will reignite the conflict in Northern Ireland. And it might be that some people think that actually um, you've kept faith with your revolutionary communist past and you're essentially, you want Brexit uh, to prevail in part because you want to see the dissolution of the United Kingdom. You want to see yeah, well, I mean, that, that is, struggle. That is scurrilous nonsense. Okay. Absolute scurrilous nonsense. I mean, the uh, dissident uh, activities of um, paramilitaries in Ireland over since the Good Friday Agreement, I absolutely condemn. No basis for that whatsoever. And even though um, there's been really malicious attempts at suggesting um, that people who want Brexit somehow are going to jeopardise the peace in Ireland, I think it's been done in utter bad faith um, around the border question. I think that it wasn't ever raised by any Remainers that I debated in the build-up to that referendum. It only became an issue as a way of trying to discredit Brexit and to say that that was being jeopardised. And I find that anyone who suggests that I am involved in some sort of behind the scenes attempt at doing anything is just as, well, it's even worse actually, um, because that has got nothing to do with why Brexit should happen. 
the Irish question has been overplayed by, I think, the European Union. I understand that people worry about the peace process being jeopardised, but I don't think that the Brexit uh, leaving the European Union would ever, has ever, threatened that peace. I guess one of the points of departure between you and some of the other Brexit Party candidates and Nigel Farage would be in your attitude towards the United Kingdom, or do you actually uh, want to see the United Kingdom preserved in its current state? You don't want Scottish independence, you don't want a United Ireland. I I, no, I do want a United Ireland, but it's something that's up to the Irish people, not up to me. Mm -hmm. I mean, I'm a, I believe in self-determination, partly why I believe in Brexit, right? Um, I've stood on a, a platform with uh, Ian Paisley Jr. recently, and we agreed with each other. I support the DUP in their backing of Brexit, you know, shown a bit more bottle than a lot of um, uh, British MPs in their kind of resilience in, under the face of the most intense attacks. Kate Howie and I disagree on everything to do with Ireland historically, but we agree on this one. Um, I, I, I was opposed to the um, uh, Scottish referendum. I mean, I, mm -hmm. I didn't think Scotland should secede, and mm -hmm. I said so at the time I wrote about it. And I have been brought up in Wales, and I thought that, you know, I, I'm not a supporter of Welsh independence. That wasn't why I was involved. You know, a united Ireland is a long-fought-for aspiration by many people, including mm -hmm. the SDLP mm -hmm. in, in Ireland and many people in the South. One of the reasons um, you're vulnerable to charges of, I mean, entryism is probably putting it too strongly, um, but of not being completely transparent about your agenda is that you and many of your former RCP colleagues, it would be wrong, it would be overstating it to describe you as still operating like a cell, but you do seem to be more than just colleagues, as though you still operate in concert and one imagines probably wrongly that there are kind of meetings at which yeah. you decide there's on a, a lines and Frank Ferretti still feels like the leader. Yeah, well Frank Ferretti is one of the intellectuals that I most admire in the, you know, living, right? Um, I've got others, right? And who have, you know, I really, really admire Ivan Krastev, who believes that we should stay in the EU, but I think he's a fantastic thinker. I'm a great fan of Jonathan Hyatt, but Frank Ferretti's a friend and has been long a uh, uh, standing association with them. But there is a fevered imagination that goes on. I mean, you know, uh, this idea that there's all these little cells around and everybody's like, I mean, this acting in concert, I don't even know what it means. I mean, so, you know, was, these things are, there is a, a conspiratorial way of imagining that everybody thinks the same mm -hmm. uh, because they met in cells you've just made the point that you and I have, and on occasion, are allies on things. And mm -hmm. no doubt doing an interview with Quillette will mean that I'm part of the Quillette cult mm -hmm. and that people will see me. And I have been, I've written two articles for Quillette and in both instances people said, ah, we always knew that Claire Fox and Quillette were involved, with, you know, like this mm -hmm. sort of dark mm -hmm. web mm -hmm. and that I... I thought, no, I wrote two articles. I got asked to write articles. I'm doing mm -hmm. a podcast with you. Know, I don't think we're in co... What does it mean? Mm -hmm. I mean, it means that we agree intellectually on things. And it's therefore not surprising that people that I was in a party with a long time ago... And by the way, not all of them. We don't, just some of the, more, the people who are still in the public sphere that you happen to know about mm -hmm. 
it's not that surprising that we don't we haven't fallen out massively on things mm -hmm. but we don't agree on everything probably and I but I certainly don't talk to them I mean, I don't talk to them in the way that is implied by mm -hmm. this in concert I talk to people that I agree with in the here and now I'm in concert with a lot of people who think that we should leave the European Union now mm -hmm. Does that mean I'm in concert? What does it mean? I don't know what it means. What do you think the best word to describe you would be? A crew, um, a no, group of colleagues, a band of brothers? No, I don't think, I don't even know what it means. I, I, I can't think of what the word is. I, because it's just, it's just people I was involved with politically and there's mm -hmm. people I admire politically now. Am I meant to renounce people that I like and know? I don't really know what I'm supposed to... Because I do think this is based on a very peculiar inability to accept, on face value, people's ideas. And this is something that goes on all the time now, and it's a regular feature of intellectual life, that if somebody says something... not with them, I'm not talking about myself now. If somebody says something, but somebody is saying, who paid for them to say that? Mm -hmm. no, but, I mean, they, but what did they say? Why do you imagine there's dark forces pulling the strings somewhere, mm -hmm. that there's been cabals of people getting together? I'm in my late 50s, I've thought about issues all of my political life. I take an issue and I, you know, with some colleagues in this office who had nothing to do with those old days or that cabal, mm -hmm. will say, I wonder what if we're putting on a debate on this issue around the way that uh, the big business and corporations uh, seem to be getting very woke, is mm -hmm. that a good idea? And mm -hmm. then I see the front page of the Spectator and it says the woke corporate, I think mm -hmm. you might have written that. But anyway, and I think that's a good way of understanding it. I think that's mm -hmm. a great way to do a debate. Is that in concert? Is that, that's the way intellectual life happens, that you mm -hmm. try and think through. And I never ever, or I try never ever to allow a knee-jerk opinion to occur. I mean, I didn't even just vote to leave the European Union without giving it some thought, even though I'd been a Eurosceptic. I didn't just go, oh, it's a referendum, I'm just going to not think about it and I'm just going to leave. I went through, in my head, everything that I could think of in terms of the pros and cons. I try and do that all the time. And I don't phone anyone up. I do talk to people that I love and admire in my immediate family, and we have arguments. But I generally try and work things out. Mm -hmm. Now, I think there's something really unpleasant about today's politics, that when you do that, people try and think that there's something else behind it. Mm -hmm. Why is there something else behind it? And then they'll say, well, didn't you used to be in a Trotskyist organisation 30 years ago? And go, yeah, well, why is that behind it, right? I mean, maybe the Catholic Church behind it, because I was brought up a Catholic as well. Mm -hmm. So maybe they're pulling the strings. Well, the other people that are accused of pulling the strings are, of course, the Koch brothers, but that sort of seems to be an entirely different line of attack. Well, first of all, I, I, I think um, found out about those brothers uh, uh, supporting some of the free speech activities of Spiked Online. I found out about it when I read it on Spiked Online, and I'd never heard of them, which might be naive. I can assure you I've never been sponsored by them. So knowing that politics is nasty in that way and people will try and discover what they think of as secret motivations and hidden agendas and try and saddle you with them, uh, 
as a way of discrediting the platform you're standing on. Knowing that, knowing how your past would be disinterred by political opponents, as well as by journalists looking for scoops and stories and headlines and clicks, that still didn't put you off? Or have you been actually unpleasantly surprised by how much of that there's been and, and the quarter from which it's come? I was expecting it. I've been slightly disappointed at the glee with which some people have done it. And what I don't want to happen, although I know that it is happening, is that I stood for very strong reasons because I think democracy needs to be saved. And I think it's really unfair on voters that instead of being able to make those arguments, people have wanted to talk about something that I thought 25 years ago. I'll tell you what's been brilliant though. This might preoccupy people in journalism mm -hmm. and the media, but I can't tell you how inundated I have been by, you know, for want of a better word, ordinary voters. A lot of people on the left as well who, might, mm -hmm. who secretly say, I'm really pleased you're standing. Mm -hmm. um, and you're going to get this, and you've got to ignore it. It's the equivalent of journalistic trolling. They're going to go for you, keep your nerve. I mean, I got three messages this morning of people just saying, they're out to do you over, um, and you can't possibly... In case anybody thinks there's a secret cabal, three people I've never heard of before <laughs> in my life yep. emailed me spontaneously and said, this is what politics is like now, and it's disreputable, and that's why it's important you're standing. And I can only say to you that if I ever thought that there was a problem, and I think this is true in general, is when people think they're bringing people down in the public sphere, and by the way, as you all know, they succeed. I mean, there is a cabal of people who try and destroy people's reputations and drag them out of public life, and they can succeed in losing people's jobs and so on and so forth and really it's vicious out there, that you'd think that was the world. You know, like it mm -hmm. feels like the mm -hmm. world, right? It feels like Twitter is the world. It mm -hmm. feels like you can't ever move for the venom and the viciousness. And, you know, I've seen it being meted out by the way against um, the, somebody standing for Change UK, mm -hmm. Nora McCready, you yeah. know, a vicious pylon against her. Now, I mean, Change UK, I can't imagine anything more unlikely that I'd defend them. Mm -hmm. But let me tell you, I wanted to say I stood with her on that. I mean, it's just horrible what happens. And that's not the basis on which she should be taken up. She should be taken up on the basis of the fact that she's standing for a party that's trying to be undemocratically undo the referendum result. You, you could think when you're under that pressure that the world is all these people. Mm -hmm. And what is so refreshing, and what was bloody refreshing about Brexit actually mm -hmm. was when you realise oh that's not the world at all that's a small incestuous vicious little world of people who fight their old battles out there and actually ordinary people aren't subject to it I remember when I went to um, I went to a meeting of uh, you know it was a business gathering uh, pre the referendum and there were CEOs and the CBI and everything. And they said, you know, what the CEO said, I want you to go back to your workplaces tomorrow and you tell them they'll lose their jobs if they vote. <laughs> I said, you know, from the floor or something, you know, I thought serfdom would end it. I mean, you don't own them. Mm -hmm. not, you know, it's not they are free. Anyway, but I, I did say to one of my mates, uh, we're not going to win, you know, we're not going to win because 
all those CEOs are going to go back and threaten everyone with their jobs. And then the next week, I kept hearing CEO after CEO on the radio saying, we've said, you know, this will, with our company will close down and leave. And I sat there and thought, oh. And all the workers of those factories heard those threats and sat there and just said, right, thank you very much for warning us that our company will close down. I'm going to go vote leave now. Mm -hmm. I mean, they were much more courageous than I was. Mm -hmm. So, you know, slings and arrows about what I thought about Ireland 25 years ago is nothing. And I think we have to remember that politics has become rotten by its preoccupation with its own memes and preoccupations. And it's not like that anywhere else. Mm. If, we, if we think of politics as being essentially divided along left-right lines in a conventional way, then your involvement with the Brexit party looks a little anomalous. But if we think about politics as being characterised by a new divide in which you have the kind of social justice left with all their illiberal and authoritarian ideas on one side and defenders of free speech and of intellectual freedom and of science and of the values of the Enlightenment on the other. If you think of it as a kind of culture war divide along those lines rather than a traditional left-right divide, yeah. then your involvement in the Brexit party makes a lot more sense. And also, I suppose in relation to the, the spats that seem to be going on within this intellectual dark web, I, I, that's why I think it's a bit... Um, self-defeating to get into that because it seems to me that that one's uh, red lines now are different uh, and, than they were in the past and so um, you know there are all sorts of things that happened in the past you know the miners stroke you on the side of the you know factor all the miners all mm -hmm. these kind of things and we've all kind of felt very comfortable with knowing where we stood and then there'd be spats within the left and spats within mm -hmm. the right now it seems to me that the big issues thrown up by contemporary society are exactly as you described, some kind of cultural that's very profound. It's not just a made-up thing. And I am very firmly on the side of what I consider to be a, an Enlightenment humanist free speech tradition. And I'm aware of the fact that some of the people who are on that side of the argument with me are on the right, and I don't care. So then you just think, so these labels, left and right, suddenly don't work anymore, you mm -hmm. know? I, as somebody who, you know, because I'm older, and I'm used to my label of being the left, you know, mm -hmm. in terms of my own description. You know, I find it galling that people think the left are the ones that are trying to close down debate in the name particularly of women's rights or anti-racism because, you know, they're, they're things that animated my politics for years, you know. As an anti-racist, as somebody who fought for women's equality, the idea that those things would be used to censor or, or brands people as misogynist and you know these things drive me mad so I want to kind of reclaim that some people on the left are not down that regressive mm -hmm. Foucaultian rabbit hole but in a way maybe that's just a kind of posture that I want to reclaim that so in the end and I know that it's come up because I'm standing in the Brexit party I have broadly speaking in the last 20 years not bothered with the label I mean other people have labelled me I haven't you know I'm the director of the Academy of Ideas and gone around saying, you know, anything about whether I'm left or right. People call me a left-wing libertarian. I didn't call myself that. I've got used to people trying to pigeonhole me. What's the point? Um, you and I have both been involved in some of the issues around standards in education. And 
I think it's extraordinary that when I was doing my teacher training many years ago, in Greenwich, somebody started crying um, in the class because <laughs> they said that, well, it got really upset and said that I was a Thatcher right, right winger because I said that I believed in standards in education. And I was like, what? And I thought, how did it get to the point where arguing for, you know, and sort of mm -hmm. said all exams are oppression. You know, mm -hmm. it was one of those kind of mm -hmm. conversations. And I genuinely thought it was a joke. And it was just the start of that kind of education really becoming mired in that. To be called a Thatcher right, right winger because I believed that exams should matter and mm -hmm. that people should have high standards was the first time that I explicitly sat there and thought, this left-right thing don't work anymore. It's just mm. ridiculous. Mm. And so I've thought that for a long time. I've actually found that arguing with people on the left who thought, like the teacher you just described, that anyone who defended a classical liberal education was ipso facto a conservative. It's been quite good preparation for being involved with Quillette and, you know, being accused of being alt-right or alt-right adjacent because we defend free speech, intellectual freedom, challenge some of yeah. the orthodoxies of the social justice left. And most of the classical, those, most of the defenders of a classical liberal education that I've known for many years um, in education, not because they're part of any political tradition I've been involved in, but as it happens, they've been left-wing teachers not necessarily that we'd agree on all things on the left, but they just have been left-wing thinkers and left-wing, mm -hmm. because that wasn't something that was a left-right issue. That was, that, that was uh, because you, a classical liberal education was kind of like liberation. You know, mm -hmm. you were saying, and mm -hmm. I always believed. Even Gramsci uh, supported exactly, it. Like exactly, but I mean, you know, I, I, you know, I was taught in that way. I went to a comprehensive school. I was taught by somebody who was actually, um, you know, a left-wing teacher who believed that someone like me, even someone like me from my background, deserved to, ha to have access to the kind of curriculum that you might get at a private school. And he said that to us in our lessons. I remember him saying it. Heresy I didn't today. even know what a private school was, I think, mm. at that point. He said, you deserve to get what they get. And I'm going to make you work your guts out so that you have a grasp of... You know, and, and that faith in us, you know, that I remember the liberation of it, you know. My God, somebody believes that. And it had been a prior secondary modern school, so nobody had gone to university f from the school, you know. Anyway, God, you know, that. And so when I became a teacher, I went into teaching. I mean, undoubtedly with a certain amount of missionary, a certain amount of you know, I didn't mean to be patronising, I was probably going to go and save work classes, and I taught in further education. I, I made a choice to teach in FE, because I wanted to go and say to kids who I knew would be maybe written off from academia, and, and, and so on. I, I went in, you know, I believe all that, and I still believe that. What's right-wing about that? What's left-wing about that? It's mm -hmm. not either of those things. It's a commitment to education. And so that's why I've I've become much more circumspect about labelling people. And I genuinely try not to do it myself. I just think, you know, if you think about some of the attacks on Quillette recently, you know, why have those attacks been made? They're, they're made to delegitimise an exciting new journalistic venture that's caught on internationally. I mean, amazingly uh, impressive what Quillette's achieved. 
as being a, a as being a, a place for intellectual rigorous dissenting views and and, and interrogating uh, some of the most egregious forms of, of injustice meted out at, 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 at people, you know, in academia or, 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 or journalism, whatever. And, and, and the way to, to discredit Quillette uh, uh, or anything else is not to say we don't like the content of it, say you're alt-right or you're right or you're only... That, or, and that way you, you make people scared and mm -hmm. worried. And, to go back to what we were talking about, I knew that what would happen when I said to some people, I'm thinking of standing with the Brexit party or as a candidate, was that people would try and say to me, your reputation will be destroyed if you do that because of associations with. And I, I've seen that happen all the time, you know, Brexit per se as a project among the Brexit party has been described as alt-right mm -hmm. and far-right mm -hmm. and as I talked about David Lammy is worse than Nazi and an extremist and what that does is it says to voters and to all of us keep away mm -hmm. you want to be a good guy invited to dinner parties you know on the television and get your media slot guaranteed you don't want to go over there and it's intimidating isn't it you just sit there and think Oh, I don't want anyone to think I'm like that. Mm. And so you actually do hesitate, right? You hesitate. And I think that's terrible because that's the death of democracy in a different way. Mm -hmm. That's the death of politics. How are we ever going to take on the challenges of building a better world, regardless of what that world might look like, if you can't speak freely and frankly and can't uh, pluck from different political traditions? You know, I want a bit of Hannah Arendt. I want a bit of Locke, but it doesn't mean that I'm never going to read any Burke. It doesn't mean I'm never going to be familiar with any right-wing philosophy. You know, I mean, what, these, these, are, these things are a, a philistine way of basically telling you that what you need to do is to follow a suite of opinions and tick them off one by one to prove that you're a good person. I've refused to do that. I wanted to set up the Academy of Ideas to create a space that would allow other people not to have to do that and to do debate in good faith. And I think maybe, you know, whatever happens now, I'm still trying to live by that, by standing as a Brexit party candidate, by just saying I'm not going to be intimidated into standing for what I believe because somebody at The Guardian might write a nasty article about me or drag up my past. Claire Fox. Thank you very much for talking to Quillette. If you would like to support Quillette, please consider becoming a patron. Head to our Patreon page. That's patreon.com forward slash Quillette. If you haven't already, follow us on social media. We're on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. Do you like what you're hearing? Perhaps you would like to read more about the issues in today's discussion. Head to Quillette.com where you will find more content.